Yeah, we're giving our phone so much power over us, then we shouldn't be surprised when that interference then can literally destroy a relationship. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Averill. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril, and Elliot is with me as going to be much more common, actually. He's moving from special guest star to co-host, and we want to continue on with the series on technology in relationships. We started a couple weeks ago with technology as it impacts romantic relationships, and then Miriam and I last week talked about technology and friendships, and now we're going to continue on with the theme of technology in romantic relationships because it's a big deal, it's ubiquitous, it's everywhere, and we all just have to learn how to manage this really miraculous device that we have in our back pocket or in our purse while still maintaining real, intimate, authentic, honest relationships. And that device can get in the way. As Mary and I talked about last week, there's a term for this called technoference, when technology is interfering with our relationships. And specifically, if you are looking at your phone instead of being present, IRL, it's called fubbing, phone snubbing. I am preferring to look at my device and interact with friends that are not in this room in this moment as opposed to being present with the person with whom I am in the room. Elliot, I know you were talking about this type of thing with your classes this week, and you mentioned self-assessment of happiness, and the technology piece did work its way into this conversation as well. Yeah, it was the introductory lecture for abnormal psychology class, and so we were using happiness measures as a way of recognizing different things bring happiness to different people, and what is abnormal to somebody might be very normal for someone else. One of the questions in this assessment was about social media and said, does social media make you happy? And it was a little bit of a trick question because the research in these survey responses talked about it seems as if social media for a certain amount of time can make you happy. But when it goes into like the four D's of abnormal psychology, distress, disturbance, all those kind of things that can quickly turn on you and what was initially a little bit happy can then make you quite sad or depressed or discouraged, especially if you scroll for three hours when you plan on doing it for 20 minutes. And so that, of course, carries over into relationships and it morphed into, it's a senior level class, so we had all kinds of great discussion today about it. And then the relationship part came up as well. And I pointed them to our podcast from what we talked about. And is it three people in the relationship or four people in the relationship once you have your phones involved? And so then some live conversation was taking place about that. And Nobody's married in the class, but I gave them an example, which I'm giving us now based on an example that happened in my office with a married couple this week, where this very technoference piece was pretty significant. And it happened even live in the session. So not only were they talking about it as the issue, because the phone was where the pornography used to be. Now that he's got himself, he's working through that and getting some help and processing through that addiction. And he acknowledged that and they're working on forgiveness and everything else. But she was acknowledging that anytime he even answers his phone, it triggers her. That pain of feeling that betrayal that he was viewing other women, not her. And he was bouncing back. It was just like our podcast two weeks ago coming live. And she, he was bouncing back to what about all the times you're just sitting there scrolling and not paying attention to me. So it was right. completely 
processing. And since we've been fresh on this topic, I was giving them some insight and some information to walk through. And a second couple example, let you give some feedback and move here in a minute. And the second one that happened this past week was the phone watch. And we didn't talk about the phone watch and how that can even be more interference because not only did an individual single man try to answer his phone like five times in a session this week to the point where I finally said something to him about, hey, can you not check that anymore? We're really losing ground on what we're doing here. Um, And he felt terrible. He was very apologetic. But then another couple, I'm helping them negotiate conflict and walk through some stuff, pretty significant stuff, not light. And the phone kept buzzing on her. And she kept looking at him, talking about serious stuff, and then stopping and pausing, stopping and pausing, looking at it. And and so I I stopped that one as well and just said, hey, it's probably going to be best if maybe you even take that off right now. Just put it in your purse or put it in your pocket or something. And unless you're waiting on a crisis or emergency, it's blocking the very flow of the healing we need to take place here to even get to the other issues that are so important that are waiting. Bunch of examples there live in the flesh this week for our conversation. So it really reinforces your experience, your clinical experience in the work you do with couples really reinforces what I've found in the research. And there was a study that I came across by McDaniel and colleagues. And it says what's obvious, but sometimes we need the research just to substantiate what is obvious and what is a normal human reaction, that the more technoference that occurs when a couple is together, the more conflict regarding technology the couple's going to experience. And specifically, when your date or your partner fubs you and that jealousy, now certainly if the phone was used for porn, I can understand that jealousy would be even exacerbated because it feels like a threat and a violation of the marital bond and you think she's prettier than I am and so forth. But then also just even if it's the female who's maybe not struggling with a porn addiction, but she just wants to see what her friend posted and he's trying to have an intimate moment date night, emotional connection, whatever the case may be. And he's competing with that phone for her attention. And of course, jealousy is going to be a natural, normal response. And for a lot of the couples I work with, they're already in a certain amount of crisis or conflict or they're probably not seeing me, at least the married ones. And a premarital one I had yesterday that came in, they're not in premarital work with me, but they're in the premarital stage and they need to work through a conflict. And so what I've seen anecdotally, which I'm sure common sense research would support, even though I don't know the particular findings, is that the more technoference you're having in a relationship, the more conflict in general you're having. Because it's just going to create another division point. And it's difficult for two human beings, even with as much as they love each other, to harmoniously work through life in a consistent manner without almost intentionally or sabotaging yourself through things like your phone and technology. And the classic, you're working on the computer doing something, maybe something very important, and your partner comes to talk to you and you're talking to them, but you don't look at them. You're still working on it or you're still researching or you're still doing whatever. And it's just rude and not appropriate and it doesn't help. And to not put your partner in that relationship at a higher level than your phone or your watch or your computers or the TV is going to cause it an oh. invalidation of the importance and the value of the person. Right. Because you're saying through your actions, you're saying, no, whatever I'm doing on this laptop or on this phone is more important than you, period. That's how it's going to be received by your partner. And I remember coming across some of the Gottman's research, and it's called a bid for attention. So when you're both sitting there, even old school, reading the paper over coffee in the morning, and your partner says, hey, let me tell you about this article. And if you just basically blowing them off because you're really interested in your article understandable. You're locked into something else. 
But that bid for attention, if it is rejected enough times, that can make a chasm wide divide in your connection. Those small daily requests for, I want your attention right now, that bid, if it's denied frequently enough, it's going to snowball. It's going to start as a small thing, but it's going to be perceived as rejection upon rejection. And I don't put all that responsibility on the person who's activating, right? So if you're on your computer and your husband comes in and has a bid for attention just to talk to you about it. maybe something pretty important, maybe something about the schedule for the day or something else, something that might you might not find super interesting. And so the responsibility is not just on you, because if we're going to work on the equality and re- reciprocity of relationship for appropriate communication and request and comfort and security, it'd be one of those where your husband could say to you, hey, Karen, can you put that on pause for 10 minutes? Let's walk through the schedule rather than what a lot of couples do. And since Dan's now in conflict, you probably would do it that way completely anyway. But what a lot of couples do is then try to make those bids or those protests for attention and not always clear and not always very specific and not always very respectfully or graciously done. And then that creates almost a rebelliousness by the one who's engaged in the activity to lock in further. And then that bid for attention becomes a really disqualification of your value. And it really feels like a full-fledged fight and you barely said anything. Yeah, and it can be just those basic patterns of communication and requests for attention. So like you're saying, you could say, hey, I want to talk about the schedule sometime this morning. Let me know when you have 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Let me know when it's a good time to break away from whatever you're doing. Or you could say, is this a good time? And all those kinds of things. And I think sometimes in the early stages of a relationship when you're madly in love with each other and you hang on every word and so your partner says something and you're just like, yes, of course, whatever. You think it's going to last like that forever, but no, you're going to get into a routine and you need to establish patterns that are respectful of one another so that it doesn't become a power play. And that are based on you because it was so cute that I gave an example from a confronting side. I asked for, in perception of what Dan would probably ask for, as someone who would confront and ask for that time right now. Put it on pause and talk to me. You went as an avoider with the question of when you feel it's right, will you stop? That was just so cute. It was a perfect example. It was very loving on my part, I think. I think, <laughs> was very I, I think my example was really <laughs> Better. Loving. You think it was better? Probably, yeah. I'd say it's yeah. better. I would. Both are perfect for who the people are. That's good that you gave that example so listeners can say, well, how would it maybe sound like for me? I don't feel that directness or that desire to confront. And Not that it was a hard confrontation, but it was more... Direct and indirect communicators will do it differently and you have to be you. And Yeah, and just getting the technology piece, weaving that back in again, I'm thinking about these patterns. So we talked about a basic bid for attention way of communicating patterns that you can build that would be respectful and authentic to who you are, but also being able to be respectful of your partner and their time and their activities and what's important to them as well. But so one of the, one of the studies I was looking at talked about these patterns that we start with this fubbing. And so if you fub me, now I'm with my partner, he pulls out his phone, well, then I'm just going to pull out my phone. And if this becomes such a part of their interactions where they tolerate it, maybe too much. So you might see the couple in your counseling office where they're now spending so many hours per day because it's like, he's always on his phone, so I'm going to be on my phone. Or he's always playing video games, so I'm going to go ahead and scroll social media. So talk about some of the ways that you can I almost wake couples up to how much of a barrier and how much this technoference is impacting them. Yeah, some of the language I use in marital dynamic that applies to partners and will be helpful here, I believe, 
anytime we're starting to do leverage retaliative responses, we're in trouble. So if we're thinking subconsciously or consciously or not talking about it or talking about it, hey, you're on your video games, I'm going on my phone. And you stayed on your video games an hour longer than I wanted you, so I'm going to stay on my phone an hour longer. And neither one of them then gets their needs met or talk through whatever they need to talk through. And of course, in circumstances with kids and other very important matters, some of those things just go completely by the wayside. And it's understandable. We're human beings. We get frustrated. We get hurt by our partner's response or reactions. And we want to get into that, I will do this, these conditional leverages. And it's super dangerous and it causes divisions and it causes cracks in those foundations of trust and security. And then avoiders are going to start deactivating behaviors and anxious are going to start doing protest behaviors and off we go. So that was a very doomsday approach to the first part of the question. But my point was this, that once you recognize you're starting to retaliate or you're starting to do tit for tat kind of behaviors, someone's got to be the de-escalator and someone's got to just come and again, be direct or indirect depending on their personality. Angie in the past, when we were first married and we were figuring out this balance for us, it would often come and turn the game off I was watching while I was watching it regardless of what point in the game it was or what the team was. And so, see, there's a super direct power shark move. And um, yes, that's it, also a woman who did not have two older brothers growing up. No, of course she not. She would be only a totally child. different person if she had two older brothers who were obsessed with sports. There's Absolutely. no way I would ever do that to Dan. No, ever. As I secure as I am, <laughs> as secure as I am in our marriage, I would never do that. No. She's such a shark sometimes. Oh my gosh. And anyway, again, like no, you said, <laughs> family of origin and context made a big difference. Yeah. But that was helpful to me because I was the one in counseling master's program and <laughs> recognizing, and of course, as a very direct communicator, she said exactly why she did that, why her bid for attention was being ignored. And I will not be ignored, Dan. <laughs> that's not a quote about your husband. That's a quote from Fatal Attraction. I remember right? that quote. It was just that kind of oh, that no. directness. But then we came up, we negotiated process. And so this is what I'm trying to encourage listeners with besides a funny story about my past. So then we negotiate and we actually, because we're both pretty detailed, obsessive, stubborn people, we actually wrote a list down on which team she could turn off and which team she couldn't. I heard so- the story. It sounds funny, right? So we got it down to the Reds and the Bengals and the Bearcats and the Buckeyes could not be turned off without my approval. Any other game I was watching, if I was purposely or even subconsciously ignoring her or her needs or she felt I was, especially if I'm watching like the third game of the day, which is not necessary, especially when it's not my teams, then she would automatically just turn off. And we do very similar things about her passion for teaching and how she can listen to podcasts about kindergarten reading and stuff for hours and hours and hours in a row. And we have these discussions on when is it okay for me, even at this age of our life now, I'm married 33 years, to say, hey, can you just put that on pause now or can you stop and listen to that tomorrow so we can make sure we walk through a day? So those sound at times, people hear those kind of examples and might go, oh my gosh, it sounds like a lot of work. Sometimes it's work, but if you create that work up front and we did these things early in marriage, then the fluidity of the system and the ability for both of us to not bring techno-ference or sports-ference or teaching-ference, I'm just recreating these new words, right? To not have those separate or break down the intimacy so that the conflicts for us two confrontational people, which will still be there, now they have ground rules and boundaries that create intimacy, strength, healing, and resolve rather than division, escalation, retaliative behaviors, leverage, conditional stuff that just completely destroys foundational intimacy in a relationship, whether you're 
just dating now or you've been married as long as we have? Yeah. And it's that need to have your own thing. And that is, if you're with the right person for you, they will value your thing. As a youngest with two older brothers, I definitely understand men and sports. And I had no choice but to become a sports fan as well. (laughs) I had to. So it's trying to maintain that balance. Like you said, respecting Angie's lifelong curiosity about how to become a better educator, but also going, yeah, but we also want to prioritize our our connection and our marriage. And, And like you said, getting those patterns in place. And with the technology piece, I do struggle because I also know the research that shows that there's a direct correlation between the amount of screen time and certainly social media time. And there's a direct correlation between tendency to be depressed and anxious. So that's where I go, okay, I understand that it's social media and someone does feel that they're making social connections, but we're seeing that the research also, it plays into our tendency to compare ourselves to other people and we tend to be less happy. So getting back to the question, does social media make you happy? The research says no. Only in limited doses, yeah. Contained, controlled, specific intentionality of why you're watching, what you're watching, and how you're doing it. So when you talk about it's so much work to put some of this structure into place into your partnership and also your relationship with social media, it seems to me imperative. It may be a little bit of work in the front end, but like you said, then that becomes fluid as you step into these patterns and that becomes more normalized for you. But I don't really understand how we can get away from what's glaringly true is that it's not a substitute for in real life connections, but yet... Some people really will try to make it a substitute. We've got Gen Zers now that feel more comfortable with their online friends than with their in-person friends. Yeah, and the whole process of being on a date with someone you're interested in and you're both on your phones and conversing about what you're watching on your phones or doing your phones, which is all secondary intimacy, no primary intimacy, and you're talking about other people, not yourselves, so again, if we talk about trying to build structures into this, and yeah, I'm, I think the this realm for Gen Z is way harder than it was for us. Yeah, for sure. And so they're going to have to be even more intentional and do a lot more work up front and just someone taking the lead and saying, hey, let's leave our phones in the car when we go into the restaurant. It's interesting you talked about the early stages of dating and establishing some patterns. So from this Ecology Today article... She says, if you're in the early stages of a relationship and it's headed the way you want it to go, don't risk the relationship by fubbing your date. One fubbed gentleman in Australia tried to sue his date for fubbing him during a movie, which certainly provides evidence that strong feelings of rejection can arise upon being fubbed by a potential partner. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, One of the alums that I talked to regularly said they listened to our first podcast on this and the whole idea of three people or four people in the relationship really stuck home for them. And he recognizes a need to not have it so present. And and he admitted that it, it wasn't just sabotaging his relationship with his wife. It was messing with his boundaries about work, that he was feeling like he was never away from the office. And part of that was his fault. He just kept mm-hmm. checking over and over again. His boss had not demanded that he do that and didn't require that he did it. He just got so used to it. So compulsively addicted to it. And he recognized taking some personal ownership to not only put it away regarding his relationship with his wife, but put it away for his boundaries on work. And he was feeling much more content 
not as discontented about his job and other things because he does have a great job and good people he works with. Yeah, and if especially if there's a little tension with the marital relationship and he's deriving a lot of meaning and feeling his self-concept is very much wrapped up in his work, which is very typical for men, then it would be the tendency to be like, well, I'm just going to bring my work home because that's how I feel best about myself. I don't feel yeah. like I'm the best husband and father that I want to be at this moment, but I do feel really confident about my role at work. And so why wouldn't I want to carry that energy home with me? And if you which, are, of course, if you know, gonna, you go ahead. I was just going to say, which is of course just going to exacerbate the problems with the marriage if there were yeah, problems in the marriage. Triples them up. And if you know you have avoidant tendencies, your phone is often a defense mechanism to get a, a barrier between you and the one that's making you feel the need to retreat even if it's the person you love the most in your world. So when that intimacy or that attachment starts to feel a little bit fragile or you can't read their body language or as, as it often happens, an avoidant is with an anxious and they're starting to get more anxious, which is making you feel trapped or controlled or are nervous, then a phone is like a quick response just to separate yourself. Mm-hmm. You don't have to make as much eye contact. You can act as if it's something really important when it's simply just a, a escape, we just got to recognize, do some self-awareness about when do I pull my phone out and why? I'd love to connect with you via my weekly newsletter. Joining the Love and Life email list ensures you're the first to know everything going on in the Love and Life family. You'll receive insider perk pricing for consultations and events, and it's the best way to keep in touch when I do what the research suggests is very healthy and take breaks from social media. Subscribe on my website, loveandlifemedia.com. And as a bonus, you'll get my free Empowered Dating Playbook. And again, just one more statistic to reinforce what an issue this is. There was a review paper in Perspectives on Psychological Science by University of Arizona psychology professor David Sabara and his colleagues at Wayne State University in Detroit. One of the studies they looked at showed that of 143 married women, more than 70% reported that mobile phones frequently interfere in their relationships. So whether they are the ones who are letting the phone interfere with that technoference or whether they feel that the phone is their husband's problem and not so much their problem, or again, it could be a little tit for tat, 70% saying it's a factor means it's something that we have to be aware of. Yeah, it's huge. And it's almost automatic. Yeah. And because we carry our phones around with us, right? everywhere, those boundaries and those separations and purposely not having with you all the time, build a little bit of de-attachment, mm-hmm. which is the opposite of what we'd normally talk about in relationships. But we're saying here, that attachment to the phone is causing attachment issues in your relationship. Yeah. And again, it's that desire for that connection, but it's a virtual connection. And if it's having a negative impact on your in real life connections, it seems like that's a a big price to pay for whatever kind of dopamine hit you're getting from the social Mm -hmm. media likes. Yeah. We're giving our phone so much power over us than we shouldn't be surprised when that interference then can literally destroy a relationship. I would be willing to bet that the phone has a cause and effect rate for breakups at a pretty high rate. I would say it's a factor in at least half of them. Wow. Yeah. Now, some of that's porn related, which is a more dramatic level, but 
Many of it's not. We talked about last time the texting versus talking scenario, which mm-hmm. often raises its head, scrolling and people getting lost and disassociating and scrolling and wasting time and lack of follow through and movement. So there's just a lot of varieties and variables where our attachment slash addiction to our phone is causing such techno interference with our relationships and ourselves, even our personal growth and our personal movements. And yes, it can be a tremendous tool for information and podcast and email ability and all that stuff is true. But man, the boundaries and discipline and guidelines we have to set for ourselves is way more intentional than 98% of us are doing. I remember in middle school when my friend's boyfriend broke up with her because she was in love with Patrick Swayze and he was jealous. That's good <laughs> and, and good now, reason. Now she could be pulling up pictures of Patrick Swayze on her phone at any time. Yeah. I do know some guys who have wrestled with that kind of example, even though that was a fun one from a long time ago. From the day. Where an obsession with one particular actress or movie star or something and this desire this man had in particular to not see nudity of her, but just see her picture or read about her regularly was an affair, was essentially created, had an emotional, mental kind of bond to this woman that was seriously hurting his spouse. And he just couldn't quite see it until there was a lot of confrontation, challenge, and encouragement, exhortation. Our satisfaction and joy in life is directly related to our satisfaction and joy in our relationships. Elliot and I are here to help. We'd love to design a workshop, seminar, or weekend retreat for your organization. We'll bring the psych research, of course, along with over 60 years of combined experience in psychotherapy. We'll share science-based therapeutic techniques within the context of a Christian worldview. We can level up in our relationships. Contact our producer, Tim May, at tim at loveandlifemedia.com to book us. As we wrap up, Elliot, I will reiterate the perspectives and practices that you suggested that we touched on in the other episode we did on this topic, but I think they bear repeating because you've got some real nice strategies for rehabbing from phone dependency and relationship damage because as we've asserted here, it's going to have an impact and it will be damaging to your relationship if you don't get a handle on it, if you don't manage it, if you don't provide those boundaries. Yeah, I think it's it's even, that's pretty direct. I'm going to get even more direct. I think it's automatically going to interfere if we don't stop it from doing that. I think that was essentially what you're saying. I just want to be super direct. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I think you're, yeah, hit it hard. You're like, I'm seeing this. It is a thing. It's a factor. And if left unchecked, it will veer off course. There's no way. So we have. Yeah. And in my uh, in my syllabus this year, it'll be interesting tonight with my night class, which is a longer time period for students to deal with. But I'm implementing the no phone, no computer, no nothing. And that'll be hard. That'll be hard for students tonight. They're not used to me doing that to them. And that'll be a for change. For them. For yeah. them. Absolutely. Not to them. For- so you have ABC, acknowledge and then boundaries, and then change. Acknowledge, you say, let's identify the symptoms and categories where we're vulnerable regarding our relationship with our phones and technology. Boundaries, you indicate that significant structure is required. And you need to move your trust to the people that you are in IRL relationships with as opposed to the phone relationships. And then change, you're indicating that behavior will change thinking, and we need to believe in the process. 
trust the process. We've talked about that before, that oftentimes we think we have to change our mindset to change our behavior. Certainly that's one pathway, Mm -hmm. but the other trajectory can be, we just fake it till we make it, behave in the way that you want to behave and let your feelings and thoughts follow. Yeah. And sometimes for me, like sports scores are still something that I can get pretty obsessive about wanting to check. And sometimes the games don't matter. Like game number 74 for the Reds out of 162. It's not going to matter that much. But I can make it more important than it is because of this feeling that equating my ability to look on my phone is like my right. And Mm -hmm. if we're having a serious conversation as a married couple, what do I have to check a score that really doesn't matter simply to flex my individualism? Now, if it's a serious game that I'm serious about and my wife fully understands my passion for sports now, this stage of our life, then I'm not saying if it's the playoffs and I haven't seen how we're doing yet and I want to check, but then I acknowledge that and tell her, hey, hon, the Reds are in the playoffs now. Can I take a quick peek and see how we're doing before we keep talking? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Right now it's set up. So those are the kind of structures that ABC kind of structure we're talking about Mm -hmm. to bring about the change rather than feeling like we got to sneak it or make up a reason to go to the bathroom. We really don't have to go, but we want to (laughs) go check something. We'll go to great lengths to assert this individualism about our phone. And if you're trying to have a authentic relationship with a partner and want that to grow and be strong, man, you got to share and talk and work through that. Yeah, that's a great example too, because while video games has never been your thing and social media is not your thing, but yeah, your sports are your thing. So it It would be very tempting to be like, I just got to go to the bathroom, but you really just want to check your red score. So you've got perspectives and practices. Perspectives, you it's a lot of self-talk type of thing. So getting back to the cognitive piece. So you have an example of, I don't need my phone to be me. I don't need my phone to be loved, to be effective, to be influential, to be happy, to be cool. And again, getting caught up in that kind of influencer mode or there's so much of what the Gen Zs are doing. Almost everyone has a personal brand that they're expressing on these platforms and stepping away from that, I don't need that to be validated. And in fact, that's taking away from the opportunity to have validation in context of real, authentic, genuine, in real life relationships. Yeah, you and I could argue that, that creates more invalidation of self than validation of self. Elaborate. The whole media platform field is so comparative and competitively based. Oh my gosh, yes. You're going to have to have an amazing self-concept to get on there and really do your thing and not feel pretty strongly attacked in some way, shape, or form. So that's what I'm saying. I I would be willing to bet it causes more invalidation than validation, especially when we're making a primary. Yeah. And one of the studies that I found out of the University of Houston that looked at what they're calling Facebook depression, but of course it works for Instagram and TikTok and the like. But the idea was that they had seen that there was a correlation between time you spend on social media and depression, but then they were trying to figure out what variables at work. And Mm -hmm. through their analyses, they did find it was a comparison game. Absolutely. And It doesn't matter if you're looking up at someone who you think you're idolizing their life and then feeling worse about your own life. Or even when you're looking down at someone, and like, oh my gosh, they're doing this sad girl thing and I'm not sad. But still you're comparing yourself and that comparison factor is related to the depression that we see. I, I think yeah. I've reiterated this story before, but it's happened more than once in my experience that someone like connected with my church or connected with my Judson community will comment about someone else's post and how it impacted them negatively because it looked like everything was going so well or so amazing. 
And yet I knew the truth of their situation because I was counseling them and they were an absolute crisis mess. And I'm not saying don't post happy things of yourself, even if your relationships are struggling. I don't, I'm not saying that. But again, in that whole perception and what we're viewing, what we're seeing, how we automatically assume certain things about them that aren't necessarily true. And, you know, how many of us post bad pictures of us? Right. Yeah. Now, we will be honest and often do some disclosure and ruminating on some of these platforms. Yeah, some do. Yeah. And sometimes that can be dangerous too. That's a whole other conversation. Yeah. But I don't know. That, yeah. Over disclosure in certain right. ways in a social realm that's just cast out into the universe, which as a therapist doesn't feel very safe to me. But I, I know that does help some people sometimes. Some people, and, yeah, yeah, they'll and just like it. Both angles are true, is what I'm saying. That often we're what we are comparing to that's causing us to feel invalidated, insecure, anxious, and unsuccessful is often just a mirage and a, a snapshot of someone's experience, not a snapshot of their life. They call it the highlight reel. Thank you. Yeah, that's the term that the researchers are using. If you have just a few seconds to help me out, I would so appreciate it. You can do so by heading over to Apple Podcasts, giving us a five-star rating and a few sentences of review that helps others find the program and join the Love and Life family. Another bit of self-talk that you could remind yourself as you're making this transition to creating more structure and boundaries around the phone usage. You could say, people survived and thrived without phones for 2,000 years. I can do this too. And another self-talk mantra, prioritize my wellness over the world's insatiable availability. Yeah, I love that, Ellie. That's a reframe of instead of being like, oh, I want to be on my phone to connect, just go, wait a minute. Because I know what the research says, I recognize that my time away from my phone is actually self-care. And I don't need to see that influencer telling me how to self-care. I know how to self-care. Let me prioritize my wellness right now and have that time, whether you're an extrovert or not. We're extroverted, but we all need that independent time. And we really are going to lack it if we, oh, I'm by myself for five seconds. Boom, pull out the phone. Yeah. And there's reasons that some of the pretty fascinating studies on like third world countries and contentedness and happiness compared to ours. They're so much happier than us. Right. That's just like the perfect exclamation point to end this on. That They don't have running water and electricity for Pete's sakes, mm-hmm. and they're happier than a bunch of us with every resource imaginable. Yeah, they are not taking Prozac. They're not taking Xanax. They are perfectly happy. No, but- just all that. It's a nice exclamation point to the reality that we can survive without this. We just got to believe it and enjoy yeah. it. And the phone fast or a computer fast is so healthy also. Yeah, and I've been doing that with Instagram. And as we are collaborating now and trying to cast a little bit broader umbrella of topics that we cover, we will be quote unquote rebranding a bit and we'll be getting back into social media because we want to connect with people. There's a tension there between having those boundaries and also being able to reach and encourage folks that you hope to encourage. But I did. I had to take a step back because it was starting mm-hmm. to become too consuming. Yeah, And I didn't like how that felt for me. And I didn't like I wouldn't say it impacted our marriage. We're just too Gen X for that. But I will say that there were times when I was like, wow, I spent a lot of time sure, on this yeah. phone today. Value assessment, right? And it was a value, exactly. Yeah, it was priority value, value assessment. Yeah. Yep. So your practices, some strategies that you leave with the listeners, some concrete strategies that they could start as they begin this process. These are some behaviors that could strengthen their recovery. One, you say 30 minutes when you wake up and 30 minutes before bed, no phone. Start with that. And for a lot of people, like we talked about last time, that would be a big deal because most of them wake up with their phone because of the alarm and then they're right on it. Uh, You say no phones on dates and during meals, and that would help 
with the sensory dependency that mm. they're used to getting that text buzz or that notification, and it would be able to provide some freedom from that. No phones in the bathrooms or in bed. Keep your phone in your pocket. Keep on, but don't alert and no update dings. Why do you want the phone in the pocket? As opposed to on the table? Yes, as opposed to on the table. Like even when we've been recording, I get so many texts and emails, especially now that school's going again and first Mm -hmm. days of classes, kids are freaking out. I just knew. I didn't look, but I knew it was buzzing and it was going to distract me. So I put it in my pocket. That's the example. I see what you're saying. So yeah. when we're done recording, I'll check and answer the 32 things I need to answer. But if I knew <laughs> right. it was there and I kept seeing it, it was going to interfere with my clarity yeah. in what we're doing. So that's a simple example. And then establishing partner boundaries for the phone, computer, video games, TV, streaming, and all of it. And yes, as we said earlier, it sounds like a lot of work up front, but it will pay off in spades because that structure will then become the norm. That brings the freedom. Otherwise, Ooh, we're often bound to Freedom and discipline. I love it. All right. Thank you, Elliot. And we hope this has been helpful. And we will continue such conversations. I don't see this being a topic that we drop early in the year and, ne- and don't pick back up. I think we're going to be picking this back up yeah, quite especially, frequently. Especially, Karen, since the research is just starting to come out yep, and give exactly. us more and more stuff. So that's fantastic because the longevity studies and longitudinal studies right. are taking root. Yeah especially since we see a dramatic shift in especially young people too mm-hmm. after the 2007 when the iPhone came out because that's when you had everything accessible yeah. as opposed Changed to your the flip world. phone. Yeah, Literally. it really did. Totally did. The love and life hack for this week is does social media make you happy? Probably not unless you can have a lot of structure and find that freedom in discipline. Thank you, as always, for spending a portion of your day with us. It means so much to us. Be sure to sign up for our newsletter at loveandlifemedia.com. Elliot's going to be posting a empowered marriage playbook for our those members of our community who are married. We want to give you as many resources as possible to help you thrive in love and life. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen Anderson Abril and Pastor Elliot Anderson. And until next time, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril.